believe we're up and running. Let me check and make sure everything's working. Yes, yes. Everything looks good. Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another Merged Worlds Dungeons and Dragons story stream podcast thing. I uh, am excited to get into it for today. Um, have a decent amount of stuff to cover. We will be getting right where we left off. Uh, but hello to everybody there. Hello, MT, Bionic, and Miss Ashley. Hello, Miss Smashley. How goes it? Um, yeah, today we're going to... Oh, hey, Michael's here too. Hey, Michael. I'm uh, excited again. We're going to be uh, starting up where we left off, which is where uh, artists and them, uh, artists introduced the rest of her group to Quintius. Gave a little bit of his backstory. They decided to heed his warning and head north, uh, the kingdom of Caradon, deal with uh, whatever was up there that was the problem. Hello, codename. So, where we left off is Quintius, found out, is the name of the magical artifact, the scepter that Artis is carrying that she took with her. Um, when she left Serenity, even though she didn't know why. Now we kind of do. Hold towards that. A young man appears. Only she can see. Representation of. Say magic or intelligent force inside of the scepter. Quintius, and he said. Been given information from the gods. Uh, basically, he they need to go north to deal with an evil. That is growing, and if they, because if they don't, everyone they know and love and such will come to doom in the end. Well, that if they don't nip it in the bud, kind of, they agree to go north, and then Seraph and his group were heading east, facing, of course, Dina, the thing they do, but uh, even more pressed now, based on some information. They have, and we should see everybody at least a little bit today. Um, so again, I'd like to thank everybody for coming. Uh, if you have a good time, please remember to click that like button. And if you are new here, it would be awesome if you consider subscribing to the channel. And for those of you out there who are listening on iTunes and Spotify, thank you very much. This uh, story is available on both iTunes and Spotify as a free audio podcast as well for those who might prefer to just listen. So to check that out there. So we begin with the Mustandy Lion leaving the port that they were left at. Uh, today is going to be heavy. It's going to have a lot of reading in the first part, and then uh, it's be a little bit more freeform as we move into the second section, uh, third and fourth. So <laughs> a lot of sections we're going to go through today. So uh, yeah, so we'll start by reading just a little snippet. So the Miss Dandelion exited the port and began its journey north by river. The river itself had many names, changing as often as the worlds these lands came from. So you can imagine this. This river is made up of a bunch of rivers. It's very long and it's very wide. In many, most locations, you can't see the other side of it. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. Most of the time, you cannot. And... Uh, you know, each land that they pass through probably has their own name for the river. There isn't one that's just concrete, everybody calls it this. Kind of. 
Artis and Rand had both managed to get some maps and information about the Kingdom of Caradon, as well as some of the other lands they'd be traveling through. Fortunately, there were many ports along the river, so staying supplied should not be a problem. It seemed there had been some conflicts in the area in the few years following the merge. A few lands fought over new borders, fishing routes, and things of that nature, but that seemed to have been sorted out long ago. As for the Kingdom of Caradon itself, it was not an overly large kingdom. It was bordered on its south and east sides by a large mountain range. To its north was a rugged rocky land, cracked and broken open by a huge ravine, uh, with very little vegetation. And by all accounts, the only real direction to travel was west, where the river was. The country across from it was split, partially in a very hot, dry desert-like, and then the northern section was much more open and um, unclaimed, bountiful land, yet the Kingdom of Caradon had made uh, no attempts to move across the river to any of those lands over there. Hello, Hanzo. They've made no, no, they've made no attempts to expand their kingdom, which, you know, Sometimes that's okay, not look for them, sometimes it's not. They would be traveling through four different lands to get there. The river was large enough uh, that the Miss Dandelion would have no problem making the journey. All told, the journey should take no more than two to three weeks. Petal sat in front of the boat, at the front of the boat, petting her familiar whiskers, the rat. She sighed as she watched the ship turn towards the mouth of the great river. She knew they were doing the right thing, and the prospect of traveling to a new land to face an unknown evil at the behest of a sentient, powerful artifact with her friends did sound awfully exciting, but she couldn't help but worry. Whiskers nibbled at her robe playfully. Hey now, she said, none of that. I only brought two robes, and I can't look all chewed on, saving the world now, can I? Whiskers squeaked twice and shook his head. Well, that's true. It might make me look more experienced. Hmm. Remind me to ask Artis when we talk to her what she thinks. With a final squeak, Whiskers ran up her arm and laid on her shoulder and inside her hood, his favorite place to be. The ship was fully into the river now, and Petal took one last look at the large ocean behind them. I hope they're okay, she whispered, rubbing Whiskers' chin. So, the river itself, I said, is wide. They've left, they're now going north, leaving the ocean behind. Um, to two to three weeks is what they're expecting on the travel. Quintius has said that it is important that they make their way there, but it's not like a race against time. It's not like they have to be there by a certain day. I did want to stress that because that was a question that was asked uh, recently. It was, hey, do they have to be there by a certain day? They do not. There's evil growing up there. They need to deal with it uh, sooner rather than later. But it's not. there's not like a specific deadline. So they have the option to, you know, stop and do things that they need to along the way. From what they calculated, like I said, it would take several weeks to reach Caradon. Uh, before that, they were going to, they planned on making several stops. The first country they'd be passing through would be the Kingdom of Verandel, which was ruled by Queen Talia Verandel. The country had previously had some issues with some of the small communities that appeared on its border after the merge, but those had been dealt with many years earlier. As the closest land to the ocean, they had quickly become a major trade city and a popular port for those traveling the river. Even though they did not need to, the group decided to stop there for a day and use it as an opportunity to learn more about the area. 
When asking Quinius, he had no objection, saying that as long as the, they continued towards Caradon, there was no specific timetable to arrive. Which is what... The ship reached the port on the fourth day on the river, arriving around midday. The port was smaller than the last, but just as busy. Artists ran Maeve, Petal, and Kip made their way ashore while Lyman saw to resupplying and news on the river. So he's going to start asking around to the other ships, right? The sooner the easier, maybe. It's possible if it's a, it's a great question, Michael says. The sooner the easier. You know, if it is something that's growing in power, definitely dealing with it sooner rather than later is probably going to be better. So they're stopping here mostly to see what they can learn about Caradon. They know that's their end goal. They have to travel through these other lands, but what can they learn about Caradon itself? Um, Lyman, at, eight, at each stop, will pick up some supplies. Uh, they really don't need to. They could probably pack enough supplies to get all the way to Caradon, uh, but it's a great way for them to, again, open up some trade. People are a lot more chatty when you're paying them for stuff. That's just the way of life, you know? Going to a store and you're just looking around, you don't need anything, you know? But if you start buying stuff, and they'll tell you their whole life story, so it's an easy way to do that. Um, let's see. The others were going to travel up the town and see what they could learn as well. Quickly, they were able to see how diverse the population was. Humans, elves, dwarves, halflings, and gnomes seemed to be in equal amounts, and everyone seemed to be getting along as well. Everyone was friendly, pleasant, and welcoming. So this is kind of important, right? Because if you look at most cities, there may be a good representation of each race, but normally there's a primary race. And Serenity is primarily human. Paxiwal, Arduel, Thoramond, they're all primary human. Kronayar is primarily, pretty much only Minotaur. Thoramond is only Dwarven, you know. Um, while others may come in and out, there's a primary. But this city, this at least, at least the port city that they're seeing, seems to be just large amounts of everybody. Um, and that's because they'd learned that... Uh, well, I'll tell you what they learned. They learned some information about the kingdom before they even got there. Um, basically, that uh, many, 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 many years ago, um, the races had come together to fight a common entity. And so, as they did, they they that that kinship that you know, those who survived it just kind of ended up merging together into one kind of situation. It was. One of those very positive worlds where, you know, there weren't race wars specifically, other than the evil that they had. The city was full of interesting shops and stalls, and the condition of the majority of the buildings and streets showed the town was benefiting from its booming economy. They saw very little signs of poor or homeless. Talking to the local residents, they learned that the land had been at peace for generations. For decades of war, the different races had set aside their differences to fight back against the ogre armies that had threatened them all. About Caradon, they learned very little, mostly just rumors. Supposedly, the queen of this kingdom, Verdon, had sent ambassadors to Caradon, but in each visit, the ambassadors had been politely sent home, with a decline to open any form of alliance or trade. Uh, it seems there were never any hostilities between any of their neighbors in Caradon, and no reason for their reclusiveness. It was quite a mystery, and it was frustrating. They weren't able to get a clear picture of where they were headed. So, I'll gather info is about city pirates. Yeah, exactly. Trying to find out what they can about the area. Um, and again, you know, also they're 
two of them, one, one and a half, are clerics, cleric and a paladin. So there's always that, hey, what is the representation of the light, good? Is there evil areas? Is there a kingdom that worships somebody evil? We should know about that kind of thing. So the more information they can find about where they're going, especially if there's something up there that's causing a problem, big enough problem, maybe rumors or part stories of it have already made its way down here. The quicker they can learn things, the more they be, may be more prepared to meet whatever the issue is. Uh, let's see. Uh, so it seemed there were... Oh, I already read that. The three, the three girls decided to visit the local temple. Kip and Ran offered to see if they could learn anything more at the city guard, city guard building in the marketplace nearby. Um, as the two men walked away, artists couldn't help but smile. The two men had become close friends, and Ran didn't seem to be following her and doting on her as much. He was still mighty protective of her, but she was glad to have some space. Because he was always Ran and the girls, and he was always that I have to protect artists with every second of my life. But as they're out traveling and you know they're around their friends and allies, he's loosened up a little bit and becoming good friends with Kip. He's had kind of more of a kindred spirit, someone that he doesn't mind. He's still very protective of artists in any situation, but he's a little more comfortable leaving her alone with Maeve and Petal, you know, while they deal with things. Uh, bah, 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 bah. In the temple, they were greeted by Father, Father Elias, a cleric of Leiliana. So Leiliana is the goddess of art and beauty. Um, so it's the muse god. So anyone who's a, a bard or an artist, a painter of any kind, uh, very often worships Leiliana. A craftsman specifically as well, um, especially those who work with leather and wood and that. Once you start getting to anybody who works with metal or stone or gems, uh, sometimes they will go back and forth between Leiliana and Corum, uh, god of the mountain, who's the dwarven god. He's also known as the forge lord. Um, so if you're creating a magical weapon or metal something or other, uh, praying to Leiliana or Quorum. Either one of those, you have that chance if you're if you're fathers to have more likelihood that they'll step in and help create the thing you're trying to make. Now that doesn't mean that other clerics can't make magic items. Any cleric can make magic items uh, once they reach a certain level and ability. Uh, they have the let me say they have the chance to make magic items, and that's a little bit different from where clerics and mages kind of make out. If a mage wants to create a magic item, he just has to learn how to do it, and then do it. With a cleric, they have to learn how to do it, do it, and then hope that the god or the entity in question that they're trying to make this through will provide them the magic to do that. Much like gods just directly give them their spells, whether or not that enchantment, whether the god gives them the enchantment or gives them the magic they need to create the item, uh, is going to be in that moment of attempted creation. Going to create this magical staff, it's a staff of healing. Maybe it's Artemis back in Serenity. I'm going to make a staff of healing, so I'm going to pray to Tavian, my god of healing. Being as high level as she is, you know, that type of thing. She's a head She's a head or elder priest at this point. Um, Archpriest is what she's considered. She's on the Serenity Temple lands where there's the magic waters underneath that increases the potency of things for healing there. So she trying to create that spell would probably have a much better chance than a cleric of knowledge trying to create a staff of healing. Could they still do it? Potentially. But it'd be, it, it, it just depends on you know how strong their faith is and all that kind of thing. 
and their capability. Um, and again, I know this is slightly aside from the story, but it's, it's still kind of important from a Dungeon Dragons point of view. And this is how I've always viewed Merged Worlds, that um, as you level up as a wizard, you're learning more and more complicated spells. You're learning to control more powerful magic. With clerics, that's slightly true. But I've always felt more that as you grow stronger in your faith, that link between you and your deity, 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 probably whichever way I say it, somebody's going to think it's the other. But as you grow closer and your faith is stronger, you are, that bond is stronger. That's what's going to let you create stronger spells. It's also what's going to get you more of attention from your God, right? I'm whatever God up in the sky and there's, tens of thousands of clerics down there asking for my help, and one of them is a shining, glowing, beaking light that blinds me every time I look down because I know how loyal they are, and they're always doing the stuff that's going to benefit whatever my healing strength, whatever it is. I'm usually going to look at that person first. At the same time, shit hits the fan. Something goes wrong in the world or there's a problem. It's also the same person I'm going to say, hey, you're the strongest one I got. I need you to go in there and take care of it. Kind of a double-edged sword there, if you will. Um, so, again, Leiliana is... Uh, the head cleric, Father Elias, is Leiliana. Again, like many other temples, many different gods are worshipped there, but it just happens that the head priest is Leiliana. He was the other cleric and was incredibly happy to meet them. Like Serenity and the other cities they visited, this temple had seen many people pass through their lands. They were pleasantly surprised to find out that he knew about Serenity. Seems the Lady of the Great Temple of Serenity had become quite the legend to distant lands, and the fact that they knew and trained under her brought them no end of questions. For several hours, they talked of their home and of their temple. So, Serenity is somewhat famous, and the things that Mercy, Artemis, Darsh, and Dandy and friends have done is known throughout lands and such. Um, even within the southern kingdoms, like, everybody's heard of them. You know, oh, they're the ones that saved the dwarven kingdom. Not a dwarf that doesn't know their name, right? Um, they're the ones that defeated, uh, helped, helped save the Minotaur uh, emperor, right? From Thorman. So, I mean, it's like, or from uh, uh, um, Arduel. So, you know, every Minotaur is going to, that's the guys that saved the Emperor. Like, there's, these are, they've, they've done big enough events that most people know them. But those rumors spread out. And then with Artemis's temple growing and as strong as it is, uh, definitely in, in the, the church world, if you will, that information would spread amongst priests very easily. Um, where did I leave off again? Oh, yes. <laughs> they did learn something at the temple. It seemed that while Caridon Car was hesitant to involve themselves with their neighbors... Clerics passing through were always greeted warmly and treated well. The kingdom, it seems, had several relatively small temples of the light. This, at least, was good news. It meant traveling about Caradon might be easier than they thought. Potentially, Artis and Maeve might be able to open doors that were normally closed. Finally, they bid their new friends at the temple farewell and decided to find a meal before heading back to the ship. So... Herodon is a kingdom. They're reclusive. They're friendly. People show up at port. It's not like they're pushing them away, but they're also not making them feel really invited. They're like, no, we... Other kingdoms like, hey, we would trade with you, and they're like, no, nah, we're not interested. Thank you. 
They're very self-sufficient, and they're in a position to be so. The kingdom itself has lumber, wood, good farmland. It's got the mountains. From protection point of view, they're protected on three sides. The river is really the only easy way to get to them. Uh, and then they have to march across the land to get to the actual castle. The castle's built up against the mountains in the very edge, uh, the very eastern edge of the, uh, the land. So they're just reclusive, but it seems that they are a little bit brighter when it comes to clerics. But, you know, that's a good sign. So Rand and Kip made their way through the crowded marketplace. They'd seen many interesting things for sale, even a strange kind of monkey that could fly, but had learned little about the kingdom of Caradon. So they'd gone to the they'd gone to the the guards' place specifically. Like we'll talk to the city guards because if there's been trouble per se, they might likely know a little bit more about it. If a ship came into port and reported, "Hey, we were attacked up in this so on and so area," so we warn other ships, they might know. Um, but they didn't find out much about Caradon there either. Caradon was the same type of, same kind of information. Like, yeah, nobody really knows a whole lot about them. Uh, those people that have gone up there and open, tried to open trade or communications or allies, they're like, we appreciate it, but we're good. Thank you. So after that, they decide to start going around the marketplace and looking to see if maybe they could find someone from Caradon. Different people from different cities pop up in marketplaces all the time. Or maybe they'll run into someone who tried to go up there specifically and open up a trade or buy goods and get some information. Because I'm sure if somebody pulls into the port of Caradon and goes into a shop, of which there's probably many, says, ooh, you have a bunch of silk, I'll take it all. They're going to sell it, you know? So somebody might have been up there and, you know, had that kind of thing. But they didn't have very much luck. But as they're walking around, the smell of food carts began to make Rand's stomach rumble. So much so that Kip heard it. Now, they're not obviously a super loud crowd. There's space to walk around, but they're kind of just going along and they're laughing and talking to people as they can. They're, they're in good spirits. And uh, Rand's stomach begins to rumble when they can smell some of the food carts. Here you go, boyo, said Kip with a smile, holding out a bright red apple. Rand stopped and looked at the fruit, and then to Kip. Where did you get that? he asked. Kip's reply was a wink and a nod behind them. Rand looked and saw a fruit stand uh, that the apples had clearly come from. You stole those, Rand said, surprised. Shh, not so loud, Kip whispered. It's okay, no one saw. Rand stared at Kip, stunned, and when he frowned, Kip was startled. I cannot take that which is stolen or unclean. I cannot dishonor my family or the princess so, said Rand sternly. There was no mistaking the sincerity in his tone. Kip was speechless, surprised by the way Rand was acting. When Rand turned as if to go to the fruit stand, Kip stepped in front of him, holding out his hands to stop him. Like, whoa, 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 hold up, hold up. It's in front of him. He's not like trying to physically touch him. He's like, whoa, hold on there, cowboy. Whoa, 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 he said to Ren. They stared at each other a moment, and finally Kip smiled and shook his head. All right, all right, he said defensively. I'll be right back. Kip turned and walked back to the fruit stand. Ren saw him hold up the two apples as if he'd just picked them up. He handed some coins to the vendor, who smiled and happily took them. Kip and the man chatted for a moment, and both were laughing and smiling until Kip finally left and made his way back to Rand and held out one of the apples to him. After a brief hesitation, Rand took the apple and thanked him. They continued, up, they continued to walk up the street in silence. 
Suddenly, Rand felt Kip's arms around his shoulder. Listen, Boyo, that I'm sorry about that. I need you to understand. I spent a long time on the streets in my youth and did what I had to to survive. Some point kind of became second nature to me. The two stepped into a side alley and out of the crowd where Kip turned so they could face each other. Things are good for me now. I'm not just barely getting by. Still, back in my mind, there's always a voice telling me I could lose it all at any second. Old habits are hard to get rid of. But I promise you, I'll try. Rand smiled. Thank you. The light will bless you for living honestly. And Kip looks at him like, Okay. Rolls his eyes a little bit. The two men went back into the crowd and towards the ship. Rand's thoughts lingered on what Kip had described of his early years. Remember, he's heard some of his, back in the Dwarven Kingdom, he heard a little bit more about his, his past and what he'd been through. Um, Rand knew he was fortunate to grow up as he had, and he could not imagine what Kip may have had to live through. He decided he needed to be more understanding and that he would lead by example. He was sure that once Kip had felt the benefits of living an honorable life, he would be much happier. Arm in arm, the two men continued searching for anything that they could help find about the kingdom of Caradon. So, you know, Kip's bard, but he's also a rogue. I mean, he straight up has those rogue skills. Pickpocketing being probably one of his best skills. Um, when it comes from a thief point of view. Um, he was not the type of person breaking and entering that kind of a thief, but as a pickpocket at a very young age, and then he up to bard and so on and so forth, the, those thieves skills that uh, acclimated him to that type of trade, they said in many ways helped keep him alive when he was living on the streets. You get used to that type of thing. Hey, here's an apple I can snatch. Stick it in my pocket. Case, you know. And he has no lack of funds at this point. Um, he had a decent amount of coin already when they met him, enough to travel, you know, take care of him for a while. And as they've been traveling through these towns, it was not unfamiliar for him to step up in, you know, if they're staying at an inn or somewhere, that he'd step up and you know, sing some songs or play a few songs. When people see, he always has his lute on his back, you know. Uh, so very often people are like, ah, plays a song guy. And he'll, he'll do that and earn a few coins that way. Um, on top of that, all the basic things that he might need to survive right now are being given to him by artists ran and the friends. Um, you know what I mean? It's, it's, he's on a ship and they made it quite clear. He does not have to pay for the food that he's being given and so on and so forth. And, um, I, I've already mentioned where he helps keep morale up on the ship and he performs on the ship and such, uh, that type of thing. Uh, so, you know, he's not really having a lot of expenditures at this point. So what little money he does make, he's getting to hoard it up a little bit. Because you can imagine that eventually, in his mind, especially with his past, eventually this is something's going to fall apart or I'm going to end up having to split with them for whatever reason. They want to go one way, I want to go another. So hoarding some of this money so that I'm not just suddenly don't have anything because I'm so used to getting it for free, you know, keeping those skills practiced and such. And Michael says, so the question is, did he re reacquire the money after paying for the apples? Well, that's an interesting question of its own, isn't it? But Rand, being the type of person he is, raised relatively wealthy, really, you know, best friends hanging out with the princess and such. Um, he never had to want for food or a place to sleep or any of that kind of thing. Um, and he's, you know, he wants to live that honorable life to, you know, 
honor, if you will, his his father and forefathers and things like that. He didn't have forefathers. He just had, you know what I mean? He, uh, so, you know, seeing someone who, you know, he, in his mind, he's like, okay, well, maybe I understand that, he, you know, why he's doing that. But if I can just show him how beneficial it is to live an honorable life, then uh, he'll get to the point where he won't want to do that anymore. He'll find he was, doesn't need to. And so, you know, ran, you know, wanting to help his friend come to the light in the, if you will, but not from more of a religious side, but more from a, you know, an honorable side. Because um, the two of them, when you look at many, many things, they, they actually are the yin and yang, right? The honorable, relatively wealthy, by the book, you know, martial arts killing dude, warrior. And then the bard who's lived on the street way longer than Ren's ever been alive by like four times at this, not five. Uh, so, you know, he's the experienced guy who's had more of the, had to go through some crap where Ren really hasn't. So um, you can see how the yin and yang of that would really work well together. So everyone met back on the Miss Dandelion later that evening uh, and shared what information they'd learned. It wasn't much, sadly. Uh, but luckily, Lyman had actually been a bit more successful. According to the captain of another ship, many other ships actually avoided Caradon. He reported, uh, he reported that tales of strange goings-on in the area, including missing sailors, strange interactions with the locals, and a general sense of unease whenever anyone was in port. So... While these reports were very general, they still helped paint a picture of the land that was their goal. Um, let's see here. Uh, but then at the same time, Father taught him about living within his means and only one. Exactly, exactly. So not he's he's not the one to go out and splurge on stuff by any means. Uh, good point, Michael. Very much so. Because um, he views his life as a life of servitude, right? I exist to serve and protect the royal family. We have this because we do that. And so, you know, I only need what lets me do that, you know? Uh, and, you know, he's still also, not only is that his primary goal, but he's also a servant of the citizens of Serenity. All the knights are. They're all, you know, they're, they're, for all intents and purposes, they're almost like lords of certain areas. That they're responsible for looking over, taking care of, all in the name of Serenity. Um so at some points, you know, taxing and such would go through them, but it's all more like a teamwork. But even uh, Quan has a section that he takes care of. One reason why he visits uh, Frank so much way up in the uh, northwest, sorry, northeast, uh, because he has to, you know, he, that's the cities that he's responsible for. All right, so they took what little they'd learned and decided to push on. Hopefully more information would be available as they drew closer to Caradon. Overall, their visit to Verendel was pleasant and reminded them of their home in Serenity. Each of them were missing it quite a bit. They'd been away quite some time now. Some of the fun and excitement of their journey was destroyed by the revelations from Quintius, and each of them felt the weight of this new responsibility. You can imagine that. Up until this point, it's like, we're going to go help our friends. And it's our first adventure out, and it's exciting, and they haven't really fought anybody. The closest they got to it was the court case thing that Artists had to oversee, and the dude ran or may have smashed. Uh, but they really haven't been in, in any type of danger really yet at this point. 
So when Quintius shows up and says, yes, there's a horrible thing up there. You have to abandon your quest to help your friends. And if you don't go take theirs, everyone you love and know could be killed by it. That's a lot of weight to throw on someone's shoulders who, up until this point, it was actually really lighthearted. It was more exploratory for these guys. Seraph and them are definitely having to deal with much more physically stressful situations. But still, there was uh, still a small thrill of expectation. Who or what was the evil in Caradon? And why did they need to be the ones to stop it? Right? We've talked, I mentioned that a little bit last week. Why is it them? Right? Of all the people it could be, right? Quintius is a, an artifact of the light. Why was it not put in the hands of like a cleric of the light or something of that nature um, instead of a cleric of truth? It's, uh, it's confusing. Why are they the only ones? And Quintius has said that he doesn't know. Now, whether that's true or not, it's hard to tell. He says he's being honest. But you know, he's saying, I don't know why it's you. I just know that it's you. So let's get to work, kind of. So over the next several days to a week, the ship traveled north without any issue. As they're traveling up and down the river, they have plenty of opportunities to see small port towns, because there's probably tens of small towns along the shore. And, you know, that just makes sense. Living by the water, where they can get access to fresh water, because it is, and fishing, and which is bountiful in these waters, at least the areas that they've gone through at this point, there's not a lot of reason why they wouldn't want to live near the water, right? So you're going to see a lot of small towns that have, of homes and things that have gathered together to fish and live together. A lot of times they start off as just a couple of families and then over time it grows. They pass through a lot of that, but there's also a lot of boat and ship travel. Um, the Miss Dandelion is a, a decent sized ship, but it's still always been a little bit on the small side. Um, and so it is on average the same size of most of the larger ships they see. They probably see maybe one or two larger ships come through that they kind of had to get out of the way for if they were in a tight spot kind of thing. But the river's wide enough that it's not really a problem. And it's deep enough in most areas for a larger ship to come through. But most of the ships they see are actually fishing ships. You know what I mean? Small ships that are fishermen for the local area or doing it to sell. Um, I'm sure there's going to be some of the other stuff. Sea fishing. Just what I said, but I mean, like, you know, octopus, squid, whatever else is down in there. I don't remember. Whatever creatures are underwater, somebody probably eats it. It's a weird world, man. You can't trust anybody. Um, they pass through a lot of local fishing, and they do swing by ports quite often. Very often for no more than an hour or so, because a lot of times it's not really a, a town to buy stuff as much as a small town of people surviving. They stop buy a couple of fish, ask how things are going, move on. You heard of Caradon? No? Yes, but you don't know anything about them? Cool. They keep carrying on. And each of these stops, they're really not learning anything new. But again, especially in the smaller stops, you would expect to not to, because there's not as many people who stop there. A little less common. Um, so a lot of the lands that they're traveling through also seem bountiful. Big forests and such, there's plenty of lumber, there's obviously plenty of good fishing. Even they've taken their hand at just fishing off the back of the boat, throwing net out once in a while to supplement their food. Why would you not? Um, although you got to be a little careful about that when it comes to fishing rules. The thing that they they discuss whenever they stop anywhere is like, if I throw my net out here, am I going to get in trouble? Am I going to start a war with the kingdom? That kind of thing. Um, 
So, you know, but they're bountiful lands, nothing that seems unsurvivable. Finally, though, the day comes that they were waiting for. Ahead, literally, they can see the world change. Um, so they're not carried on yet, but they're getting to a point that they've been expecting. Literally ahead of them, as, imagine you're on the front of the boat, right? You're looking ahead. And river, at this point, is just narrow enough that you could see both sides from the middle. Two or three ships could pass by each other fine. But it's still, you can see over there and you can see over there. So imagine you're heading north, right? So that means your west is on your left. Your east is on your right. You look out to the east. And what do you see? You see woods, forests, maybe some plains, grasslands that come up to the trees. Occasional village thing, right? And you look to the left, much of the same thing. But now, up ahead to the left, all they see is a sheen of white. Like someone has taken a paintbrush and slapped it across to painting in front of them. Ahead of them, there's a solid line where beyond that, all of the trees and even the tips of some mountains they can see are very much covered in snow. They knew that they... Do they pickle the fish? I'm sure, Miss Ashley, that there is at least one barrel of pickled fish somewhere on this ship. Maybe more. Great question. But they knew they were going to get to a point where the merge lines, where they hit a merge line, and suddenly they're going to be in incredibly cold weather. Prepared for this, they'd made arrangements to purchase clothing and extra blankets, both for the crew and everyone else as well. Um, it's not something that these guys ever have had to deal with. Think about that. Darsh's area is all very tropical. Corman, the Dwarvens, is a bit colder, but it's not frozen. They go through all four seasons. And most seasons happen in uh, Arduel and all of that stuff. So the seasons are light. There's no real heavy winters down here. Serenity will get a heavier winter than any Arduel or Paxiwal winter. You know, aside from like a freak storm, which can happen anywhere. Um, it's actually lightly tropical as you get down in that area. So this ship has never had to travel in frozen waters. Lyman, who has been traveling since before the merge, is more experienced, and he's dealt with that. So he's made arrangements once they found out they were going to be going through this area to get some things that they needed for the ship. Luckily, the merge line actually also splits the river. Not a direct line, almost more like a, a serpentine line. But there's parts where you can literally be in the water, and the left side will be all frozen. You see big ice flows or glacier things. And on the right, it's still warm and tropical. In these areas, for convenience, more often, the ships stay to the warmer weather. Because if you could sail your ship in a warmer weather or frozen weather, which one would you choose, right? Um, but, depending on how many ships are in that area, sometimes someone may have to get into the chilly area for everybody to get through. This is, again, this is relatively wide enough that it's not that much of a problem, but they did learn that the frozen area is actually deeper, but... It does have things like frozen ice and uh, icebergs and stuff floating around. So you got to be a little more careful around there. Oddly enough, none of the floating ice ever crosses the line. It's almost like there's a separate current for them. And it, when it gets to the edge of the line, it almost like it spins around and comes back. Even though the river itself never stops flowing north. But like an undercurrent keeps pulling the ice and such back into the cold area, it never moves into any of the warmer areas in the east. <clears throat> um, 
So because of that, they you know they get out some of their warm clothing because you know they just just in case and they have to go into the colder area. But like everyone else, they're going to do their best to try to stay to the eastern side of the river where there's not that problem. So Artis later that day is in the girls' room, the girls' share room. We talked about that. She had just changed her clothing. A small storm had risen up suddenly, and she was the only one outside, and she had been caught by a little bit of rain. So with them being so close to the cold area, not wanting to take chances, she'd gone back in and changed into another set of clothing. Artis, said a voice suddenly behind her. Quintius, Artis exclaimed, turning around to see him. You need to stop surprising me. And how did you know I wasn't undressed? Quintius smiles and gives a respectful bow apologizes again my lady i do not mean to try to surprise you though to be honest i don't know how my arrival might not be as surprising it's hard to just appear somewhere and not surprise and he says and you need not worry you told me to because she did he promised oh never to watch her change or anything like that and so he's like i can tell by sounds when you're dressing and not dressing i've been alive tens of thousands of years i know what things sound like so once i you know heard that stop i knew things were fine i popped into the room and uh, artist, artist is like a little irritated, but she's like, okay, buy that for now. She's busy drying her hair with a towel. She's like, what's up? Because I will say that while Quintius is there and she can ask Quintius anytime she needs to be like, Quintius. And he'll like a pop right in there and goes, yes, artist. Like literally, hey, Quintius, yes. He just appears. She never really asks, are you out there? Just watching or waiting for me? Are you asleep until I say your name? And really got into the deepness of that yet. But she knows if she says his name, he'll just automatically appear anytime. But he doesn't do that very often unless he has something specific to say or unless they have a specific question for him. So this is he popped in out of nowhere. She's like, What's up? And Quintius tells them that on the next day they'll be passing a port on the western shore. In the frozen lands, it's very important that the ship make port there and they go ashore. Artis, of course, is like, okay, why? What's there that we need to find? And Quint says, I can only tell you that there's something important there. I, I don't know what it is. Artis, of course, hears this, but she's a little irritated at all the mystery of it all. Right? Why can't we know more? And Quinn apologizes. And he, when he says he's very sincere, he seems like he's irritated as well. He's like, he's, I, I wish I could tell you more. I, I would in a heartbeat if, if I could, you know. Uh, but just suddenly I have this knowledge and I know I need to give it to you. I'm not, you know, I, obviously it's from Minara, goddess of light, or, or something that represents her. Powerful minion or something, whatever. Because that's, you know, that's coming from her and I give it to you, but I don't get any more than that. And trust me, I wish I could. Says, you know, and he says that he he's he's actually honestly a little worried about them. Says this in a moment of almost like in just pure sincerity. Artis goes, "What do you mean?" Says, "Well, I'm going to be honest. I've only been summoned a very small amount of times in the thousands of years that I've existed. I've only been awoken by the God and, and placed into actions a very few amount of times." But in each and every one of them, the situation was dark, horrible, or straight-up catastrophic events. I don't get pulled in for little stuff. If I'm awoken, it's usually because there are 
major life-changing world events that are going to happen, and I am needed. Saying this to be egotistical, I'm not saying this to say I'm important, I'm saying that powers granted to me by the light are only usually given in times of great dire need. And the fact that I'm here right now with you folks is a little unsettling. And he's trying to dance around it and be nice, but she gets the point. You guys are kind of low level. <laughs> I mean, you know, looking at it from a from that kind of point of view, he's like, hi, I'm a very powerful magical artifact. And I usually roll with level 15 through 20 parties and I'm hanging out with some level twos. Um, I'm not sure how you're going to survive anything that needs my abilities. You know what I mean? Something that a level 15 character would need help with is when I get pulled in. You're level two. Maybe three by the time we get there. What in the world are you going to survive that I genuinely need for? And again, he's not saying this to be, you know, just egotistic. It's legitimately a concern for him because he is a good person. It, it, he's, he's not an emotionless robot. He has emotions. He was created out of emotions and love for families and, and all of that kind of stuff. So for him to be sitting there and like, he's like, I'm hanging out with these Children, even though when he appears, he still looks like a young uh, I'm hanging out with these kids, and I have no idea what they're going to have to mess with. I'm only getting notes passed to me on a sticky note with five words on it. And I'm like, I need to know more because I feel like I'm going to have to do the heavy lifting. And I can't do that if I'm not prepared, right? Even he wants to know what he's getting into. So in this moment of sincerity, she 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 gets where he's coming from, and he doesn't mean it mean. He's genuinely concerned for them. Because he is. You know, he he remember, he's been watching artists since she grew since he was a child. He's been watching and waiting for this time period. He knew that he was meant for her at some point in her life. And so he waited. And when he knew that she needed a nudge towards clerics, he helped nudge her that direction, introduced her to the church, and then sat back while she did what she needed to do to choose her path, waiting. So he's had time invested in this, you know, even though it seems like such a small time of his lifespan. It is like that, because you imagine he's been alive this huge amount of time, but for 95% of it, he's been dormant or asleep. And he's only summoned and awoken when he's needed. So there could be thousands of years between two days that he's conscious. So even though he's been alive this long time, he's only had a few lifetimes, which are still long, but a few lifetimes of life to deal with these people. He's worried about these people. I just can't stress that enough. You're probably thinking, but Draven, you'd never throw level twos against something that hard to fight, would you? Of course not. Unless it would be good for this. So, after he makes a come, artist assures him that they're ready. She admits, she goes, she goes, I know, I understand. And I know that we're green. I'm familiar with that term. It means they're new. They're relatively fresh. And we know that we're kind of green to these actions. Um, but, you know, Faith is strong, and the Lord's and the... Because she's going to do that, you know. Faith is strong. Zorn, we are uh, by no means helpless individuals. Went again, smiles, even though he still looks a little worried. And he says, and I promise that no matter what happens, 
I will do everything I can to aid you. So, the Miss Dandelion pulls into the frozen port late the next day. Uh, the village itself was not overly large, and the few boats they had were clearly meant for fishing. Now, when I say it's not large, I mean it's not large. But what I mean is it's large, but not large. That sounds very confusing. It'll make sense in a minute. They learn that the name of the town is Varugan, and the citizens, the people live here, are human. All right? So Varugan is a human-based city, and yet not a single one of them is under six feet tall. Most of them are closer to seven. And to describe the lifestyle of these people, we would go very much Norse or Viking. Okay? Long beards, the braids, the, or the tattoos horn helmets, whatever, all that classic type of warlike race, except in furs, right? They're dressed up in the furs. Thought I had my phone turned off. <laughs> They're dressed in furs and things of that nature. Um, carrying their large weapons. Uh, very muscular, in-shape people. Uh, so because they're large, the buildings are built for a larger group. You know, for a lot of these folks, you know, Artemis, and or artists, and especially you look at pedal them, they'd have to you know pedal would have to would have a hard time reaching a doorknob kind of a thing. Maeve is like finally a door I can I can go through that I may not have to duck that much. She will. She's still taller than most of them with her horns, but it's still way more convenient for her. So the village isn't a large village, but the buildings in the village are larger than you would normally expect. So you know, in in many ways. Uh, for people like the regular human, like Kip and uh, Ran and such, who are you know, normal height kind of thing. This to them is, oh, this is what it feels like to be a dwarf or a gnome in a human village because everything's higher than I expect it to be. Um, and as people are walking around, you know, because they get out there and it's it's snow, it's not like a blizzard going on right now, but it's cold. There's a wind going on. It's frozen. People walk around and dressed up, openly carrying their weapons as most warrior race does, and strapped with weapons are both the males and females. There seems to be no difference between them. Uh, there's not a lot of children running around. It's also cold outside. They probably see a couple. But the uh, raising of children and the uh, defending of home falls equally upon the entire race in, in, in this type of thing. There's, there's Nobody stays at home and raises the kids. Everybody goes out and kills the bad guys or the good guys or whoever the guys are at the time. So... Seeing this in the big building, they decide that they're going to go in and they don't know what they're looking for, but the best place to find anything is the inn, right? An inn or bar is usually a central hub for communication, rumors, locals to hang out, and it's the best place to get information. If you're ever playing Dungeons and Dragons and you don't know what to do next, find an inn. Odds are somebody there will give you a quest. That's <laughs> just that's how Dungeons and Dragons works, right? But, uh, you know, a central hub, that a temple or a um, marketplace would be the other places you go to where people congregate that items or information of interest may be found. They decide there's one inn in the town, and it's a small inn, but large. It's not, not uh, have tons of rooms, but it's still a big building. <laughs> so they decide to go on in and ask around. So as they walk into the inn, as they're going in, there's some music they can hear it playing from 
from outside, right? There's obviously some people in there playing some drums and music, and they can hear laughter and people talking and stuff. It's like a loud, rowdy kind of place. There's clearly a lot of people there. They can see a lot of smoke coming out of a chimney. The windows are glowing, even though they're frosted over. They're like, okay, well, there's definitely people in here. Sweet. So they go in, and they open the door, and they walk inside. And within just a moment, all the music stops, and the chatter dies down. Not to, like, dead silence, but it definitely gets lower. And all eyes are on them. Now, artists and Maeve are the first two people in. Uh, this is specifically chosen that way. The first sight they want any group or people to see is a cleric and a paladin first. A, it kind of gives the impression that they're in charge, which in some many ways they are. But they want that first impression on a new group is, hey, here's people representing good gods. Unless this is an evil village, that should help in some degree. And then they step, the Mave stepping in is a 50-50. Here's a paladin, a warrior in a place like this. That could be respected. But they only see these large human Viking look people, looking people. So how would they accept other races? Mave stepping in, good uh, uh, representation of, hey, there's other people here that are not human, but some of them are very big. So it's very deliberate, the order that they would enter into a building. Um, there are circumstances where that might be different in, 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 a, in a city where they know other races are not tolerated. They might have a human go first. You know, they would just do their best because they're not, you know, they're just trying to make sure everybody gets along okay and get as much information as they need. They make their way across the room towards the bar and music comes back on just a little bit. You hear somebody playing something, a harp or whatever. Uh, and there's a conversation, but it's not as loud and boisterous as it was before. Artists and friends make their way across the room over to the bar area. Um, and the chairs, as you can imagine, are high. Except for Maeve, who's happy with it. Pedal climbs up one real quick, and Ran and Kip, a little bit, you can just hop up easy onto it. Same with artists. But Pedal has to climb, and she makes her, makes her way up there relatively quickly. Even in her robes, she's very dexterous. The barkeep, an even larger guy than most others, with a lot of scarring on his face, you know, cuts across his face. He's got both eyes, but, you know, he's got cuts and scars. They can see him on his arm and such. The, the guy's obviously been through a lot of battles. Pleasantly enough, is, uh, you know, what can I do for you? What do you want? You know, but in a friendly tone. He's not trying to be a turd. He's like, what, what can I do for you? And they're like, oh, we thought we were, we're, we're traveling through. Thought we'd make port. Maybe grab a few supplies. They say that every time they stop. Again, to let people know, hey, we're going to spend some money here. Right? That's positive. Always want to give that clue off quick. Our ship stopped to gather some supplies. We thought we'd swing in by, grab a drink, and, uh, you know, meet some of the locals on our way through. He nods and he starts pouring everybody a overwhelmingly large mug of alcohol. Much to Maeve and Kip's pleasure. Maeve likes some bevs. She grew up in a household where she's been drinking since she was young. It works. And Kip has been an adult for a very long time. And he spends most of his life in inns and bars. So you can imagine he's got a pretty high tolerance for alcohol. Okay. Uh, pedal artists 
and even ran, more likely are wine drinkers, even though they've had to adjust well since they've been on this trip. Uh, but these are even large for them. Like that's a huge uh, looking Mugen style mug, right? He starts pouring them drinks, and they're like, uh, so we're passing through. We're on our way to the kingdom of Caradon. Do you know anything about that? And again, the place goes really quiet. Quieter than the last time. Bartender puts the last mug down in front of Petal and goes, Nope, can't say I know anything about that. Minute. Conversation comes back on, but there's no music. People are chatting now in very hushed tones. Our friends are here trying to enjoy their drinks, but at the same time, trying to strike up conversations with the bartender, other people at the bar. When they start trying to talk to them, some people are polite and like, oh, you have a good day, and they walk off, and some people just get up and leave and go sit somewhere else. So they're very, very feeling um, unwanted at this moment. And they was nervous, you know, when they first went in, they definitely were, you know, stood out. But that just could have been because how strange they are. There may have been a group like them that's ever come through. But what, since they mentioned Caradon, no matter where they look, somebody hides their eyes real quick. Everybody's been staring at them. After 30, 40 minutes of hanging out, drinking their incredibly large drinks, Maeve had two, um, they have had no success striking up anything more than just the calmest... Uh, uh, courtesies common, common courtesies from anyone else in the room they're finishing up their drinks and they're getting ready to leave and the disappointment on their faces like wow it's, we're supposed to come here for something important and no one will talk to us um, and seeing all this Kip gets a little testy he sees like how disappointed his friends are and he's like screw this noise and Kip stands up and starts walking to more to the back of the room. And he goes up and he stands next to the incredibly large hearth, a big fireplace. And he pulls his lute down and begins to start strumming a song. He starts off slowly at first, and it's obviously going to be a slower tune. And as you can imagine, all eyes kind of turn on him. Even the friends who are still sitting in their chairs at the bar, everybody starts looking at this young man. He's got a lute, so obviously they can say he's probably a musician or bard of some kind. They've seen bards before. And Kip begins to sing a song. Now, the song that he sings is one that they've never heard, and it tells a tale. It's a song of heroes going to battle against forces powerful and dark. I'm not rhyming it. I didn't write the actual song. I'm just telling you what the story is. Don't expect me to sing, and I'm not going to rhyme today. If I had more time, I might have written out the actual poem. And if you really want one, tell me. I'll write out the song. But it's one of those things where he's like, he's like, there, there was a force of evil. The people had to leave home to protect their families. That's the basic of the original basic stories. And that they had to go back and hold the line against a force of darkness until those they loved could escape and get away. And they were willing to hold back the dark at the cost of their lives, knowing that they would see no living light again, that those they left behind could be free. And those that gave their lives that day in battle and in sacrifice rose to Coram's hearth 
after the days they after the battle was done. Coram is the god of war, and if you see these people, it's going to take you half a second to say this is a group of people who worship Coram, god of war, because Coram himself is very Viking-like in the way that he's known to be dressed and in the way his avatars have appeared when they've been human in nature. Coram uh, is very much of that big Viking longhouse kind of, and the warriors come and sing in battle with with me if you die in battle and honorably and stuff. It's very common or, or very uh, uh, comparable to the God of Truth, right? Because he has his halls, but they're not big wooden longhouses like this. They're more of a big marble hall like you'd expect with golden things and tarp tapestries and such. Uh, but here it seems more like a long, wooden longhouse of Vikings and such and loud and and kinship and ale and so on. So they have commonalities between their, what you consider, what would their heavens would be, uh, which is something we're going to talk about a lot in the upcoming future. Because um, I haven't even begun to talk to you guys about what happens when people die in merge. It's a lot. But we're going to come back to that at another time. So uh, Miss Mashy says, I can have Jim write the music if you do the lyrics. I could do that. I could do that. Be our first song, right? So, the song he's singing, "Tale of Sacrifice," it's the it's a slower kind of song, but he's got in this one he's singing with a very with a deep baritone. He's very loud, but the the music is relatively soft in the background, just enough to complement his voice. So it's very much like a like a a, a, a memorial hymn. The kind of style. And he picked that song for a reason. If you're going to be a bard, you need to know your, read your audience what they want to hear. So the song goes on for quite a while. And when it ends, there's another moment of silence until people start, you start hearing a clap here and then starts clapping and people start banging the tables and there's quite a bit of cheering. It's the exact reaction he, he was looking for. He's like, okay, this is my chance to help out my new friends here. You know, I've been helping little bits here and there, but here's my chance to turn a, a dour situation into a possible win. And so he starts, you know, he, he goes into, I need to get their attention. I need him to open up a little bit. I've read this crowd. This is what I need to do. And he gets up there and he sings that song and has the exact effect he's looking for. You know, they've never heard this story, but it's the exact kind of story a group like this would love to hear. So at the end, there's applause and there's cheering and so on and so forth. Um, And... You know, all that's that kind of happens. There's applauding, and then after that, he starts playing music again. He goes into his second song, so on. Now we're gonna flash forward an hour or two later, okay? And the whole place back to how it was before they walked in. There's music playing. Kip is singing with some other people. They're all jibber jabbing, playing music and stuff. And Kip's learning a song that they're teaching him. And once he learned it, he played it back and everybody loved it. Once he played one of their songs, they couldn't get enough of that. Uh, yeah, he sang a couple of tunes that made, uh, ran and artists turn a little red due to their, uh, lewdness and funniness, if you will, very inappropriate type kind of song, but the kind of people in a bar, the common man would, you know, kind of thing. Um, I would liken that to our own past. You know, if you look back to the original, me getting hotty toddy here, but if you go back to original Shakespeare, right? You know, there was nudity, there was dirty jokes and stuff and like that. It's the type of thing that appealed to the common crowd. People would laugh at and so on and so forth. It's the same type of thing that, you know, 
groups of warriors and stuff would laugh at, laugh at afterwards. So a mix between battle hymns, war songs, and that kind of thing. At this point, people are laughing around, even though artists and uh, Rand get a little red at that type of kind of thing, because artists is noble-born, and Rand's just uptight. <laughs> Petal would just sit there and clapping along because she thinks it's funny, maybe taking Whiskers and making him dance to the music, who everyone's very intrigued by Whiskers. And Maeve, you know. So we flash forward a couple of years. The whole place is loud with songs and cheers. As we fade in, if you will, you see Maeve at a table straining and grunting. And all of a sudden, bam, she slams the fist down. And arm. she raises her hands in victory of the arm wrestle. And the huge dude across from her is nursing his arm. And the whole crowd goes loud. And she reaches down and picks up another big tankard and literally chugs the whole thing. And then puts her hands up in the air. And there's foam all over her face and stuck in her whisk hair and such. And everybody's cheering and type kind of thing. Well, that's going on like... Like I said, Kip is in the corner performing with some others, and Petal is over at the bar performing funny magic tricks and having whiskers sitting on her shoulders, and people, can I pet your whisker? You know, because there's not a lot of rats running around in Frozen stuff like this. But they're like, yeah, whiskers my pet. You watch him run over to the side. Watch him run over to the side. Then she's casting little spells, interesting things like that. It's intriguing those people. Artist has been spending several time in another section of the room telling stories of serenity, stories of her family's past. They've heard the word serenity. It's passed through vo people's voice, or you know, things happen far, far, far to the west. They don't know much of it. So hearing the stories of battle and how serenity came to be, and the the battle of serenity of the uh, first battle of serenity against Oromon. They've not heard of Oromon either. But he's talking about Oromon, a force of evil, a kingdom trying to dominate and such. It just again, it's all about battle. The different races coming together to destroy the common evil. Love that they're eating that kind of stuff up. So. While all that's going on, Ran is also politely saying hi to people and talking, but Ran has been nursing the same cup since they walked in. And while he smiles and he's talking, he stays slightly away from everybody because he's watching the room. In this situation, he knows his friends are doing what they do. Ran is not an overly charismatic person. He's a good-looking kid, you know, all per se. He's not gorgeous, but, you know, he's, he's an alright-looking guy. But he's not a big chatter. He's not the guy out there telling the stories or getting in there and laughing and putting his arms around people and kind of stuff like that. Kip's the first person he's ever really kind of had that uh, really like bro friendship with kind of thing. You know, with the girls, he's always been in a, I must protect them, even though technically all three of them are probably stronger than me in most ways. Uh, you know, but he's always felt that way. But in this situation, while they're doing what they have to do, he's quietly kind of sitting in the back, being polite and friendly and saying hi to people and having a chance to talk. But very often, it doesn't take long for people to realize he's the quiet one. And he's doing this because he's watching the room. Is there a problem going to hear? Is, there, is somebody, you know, I see somebody, their hands resting on their weapon a little bit too much. You know, somebody been drinking too much and looking, you know, negatively at any of the people, you know, he's watching for any potential trouble because he also knows they're here for a reason, but he doesn't know what that reason is. So while everybody's watching for that, Ran is watching for any sign of potential trouble in the crowd. And that is very much Ran's go-to position in any place they go to when they're a group like that. He's always the guy with his back against something solid watching the room. Now, Artis, while she's sitting here chatting, she can't help but have her eyes darting around the room as well, because she's the only one who can see Quintius, who's also walking around the room looking at people. And he's kind of staring, he's listening, and he's walking around. He's not touch. he walks through people. 
Can he physically affect the outside world? Yes. Mostly when it comes to artists. But he can, most of the time he just walks through tables and such. He's more like an illusion that only she can see. But she can see him and he's walking around and it's like he's looking. Like he's trying to find what are we here for as well. Right? He's actively searching where he can really get up close to people that maybe they can't. Because remember, he can hear and see what artist sees. Or her scepter, his scepter, him, which is tucked into her belt, he can literally see and arrange from that. So he can go a certain distance away from his scepter when she has it. Not when she doesn't. It's locked in a chest in the room. He can communicate with her. She'll hear him, but he can't pop up and walk around and look at stuff. But right now he can. And if she can see that back corner, he can see that back corner and he can look around the corner a little bit. Can't see through walls. So he's got a range that he's, his physical form, if you will, can take, but it can only go so far. So he's walking around. He can walk over to that table where artists can't hear what they're whispering. And he can literally put his ear down in the middle of their face because he's just passing through them and hearing what they're saying to try to see, is there something here we need to know as well? So in his way, he's also doing a little bit of what Ran's doing, but he's doing more searching for things to help them where Ran is looking for things that could harm them. Um, <clears throat> so all this is going on and chatting. It's been several hours. And finally, the bartender, you know, kind of pulls artists to the side a little bit. And artists and him, they, they're just the side of the bar. People are, Kip's probably playing a new song and the people up there kicking feet and stuff and Pedal's dancing to it and everybody's clapping because Pedal's dancing and, you know, maybe she's making a little whiskers dance, whatever the case may be. Um, it's a chance for the bartender to kind of take artists aside a little bit. And he says, about the Caradon that you were asking about earlier, it's not a safe place and you should not be going there. Artist is like, well, why is it not a safe place? What, what have you heard? What do you know about the place? And he says, I can only tell you what I've heard. Place as dark spirits. Okay? Kind of dark spirits. Let me tell you, there's a man who lives on the edge of town who went there several years ago. When he came back, completely different person. Still polite. He's colder. No emotion. Sit in here like a night like this and he'd sit in the corner and just watch. Made people feel uncomfortable anytime he's around. And I have to say, since he's been back, there have been some unlucky times for the village. Fishing, for some reason, has been poor, even though all the lands around us seem to be having no problem. So animals disappearing at night, livestock, things that we would normally keep to survive, because you know, they're going to have some cows and big woolly sheep and woolly cows and things like that. And he goes, now I can't say anybody knows anything for certain, but I can tell you no one feels comfortable around them there. And he's the only one in the village that's ever been up there. You know, you don't go into a place like that and come back all strange unless the people are strange. You know, give him a wide berth. You're good folk, I'd recommend you giving Herodon a wide berth as well. So, there's no proof that the man's involved, but everybody in the village pretty much assumes it's him. But again, folks like this, small town, could be very superstitious. A little partying and hanging out with the people go late into the night. Finally, it comes time where the bar's closing down, half the people are drunk on the floor, and our heroes decide to make their way back to the ship. 
they're... Okay, Maeve's drunk. Maeve's very drunk. But even drunk, Maeve is walking around like she's not drunk. She'll turn to you and say something that doesn't make any sense. But somebody pops out of the shadow, she will cleave a head. Which is why they keep her in the middle of the road. Because anything jumping out of the shower, shadows could lose a head, even if it's a nice person. Very drunk. And so everybody's a little buzzed, except for Ran. Really? Petal's even a little lightheaded. So she's she's extra quiet at this point. Once she realized she was getting lightheaded, um, she had to stop talking as much. She had to focus more. I've mentioned in the past that as a wild mage, she's always constantly trying to control the wild magic that she's linked to. Because it's very easy for her to not let magic out. Wild magic can work like that. Because unlike a spell, just wild magic exploding could just do anything and could cause damage or hurt people. So she's had to keep that controlled. And as she feels herself losing control from the alcohol, she's trying to start focusing in on herself. So when she started to get to that point, she stops. So she's got a little buzz, but not too much. But she's being a little bit quiet at this point. But they make their way back to the ship. Have no problems doing so. And as they're getting ready for bed, you know, getting to go back to the rooms, they decide that the next day before they leave, they're going to spend the night here in port. They're going to go and talk to this man and maybe learn something about Caradon from him. There is something weird, but, you know, find out. So the next day, when they all wake up, they decide to, you know, go about their day. And Petal and Maeve are going to spend some time talking to the docs, some of the folks they saw yesterday. Swing back by the inn again. You know, just say hi, pay respects. Because they don't want to all go marching up to this one guy's house, right? They don't want to seem like, hi, we're here to, you know, ask you questions about your life. They want to, you know, so... And with Maeve being as big as Maeve is, and Petal being a kender, not everybody liking them. Although these people don't seem to know what a kender was. Petal was the first kender they they had any access to. Probably better for them in the long run. They decide to do that, get a couple supplies that they want, especially if they're going to be traveling north and how cold it is. They realize that even though they brought blankets and stuff, they're still underdressed. So this is a good place for them to spend some coin, maybe make some money in some shops and get some like really heavy blankets and such because Maeve also looks at this. If they do get to a point that they leave the ship and they're not going to get back on it, the ship is going to go back home. They will send it back to Darsh. And if that's the case, she's looking also for things that she could send back to her father. Hey, this is a small village, but they've got amazing bear rugs or wolfskin rugs or robes or things. Stuff that you can't really find, right? Because I've already said, nobody down there ever deals with in cold temperatures. Darsh has not had to do that. He may have once or twice because he's traveled further. But not many of their ships do. So maybe if they can find goods here, they can't get else. This little village could become a port spot for her father. It's a smaller port. Not a lot of people are coming here. So she's also, with everything else going on, still thinking about her family. She's still got her father's business mind. The whole family does. Not as much as her older brother, but she still has that. So that means artists Kip and Ran make their way to this man's house. Now, they don't know his last name. The man's name is Ulf. U-L-F. Ulf. It's a very common name. He makes his way to meet Ulf. Um, and when they said lives on the edge of town, they were being nice. His house, barely visible from town. Um, excuse me. The, the house itself, as they approach it, definitely looks 
newer than many of the other houses they see. Um, so they make their way over to it. They can see that there's a little barn out back where they can hear probably a cow mooing or something like that. Probably has a couple, an animal or two of himself and there's smoke coming out of the chimney. Even this morning, it's relatively cold at 10 a.m. They go there and they knock on the door and the man opens up and he's a large man, just like everyone else. Not overly large, but he matches everybody else, but he's definitely older. His hair is graying a little bit up the edge. So they say he's probably maybe 40s or 50s. Um, based on this group of people, they just naturally don't have the longest lifespans anyways, due to the harsh territory that they live in, as well as, you know, combat and being a, a battle-like race. Uh, but he's there, he has a smile, and he's like, yes, can I help you? And they're like, uh, yeah, we uh, heard that you've been to Caradon, and we're traveling that way. And thought, you know, we don't know much about the area, but we're, we're heading up that way. Uh, it was recommended you might be able to, to give us a little information about Caradon. And he's like, well, what a pleasant surprise. He's like, I'd heard that there were some visitors in town. I picked up some things at the shop this morning, but uh expect you to come by here. Sure, come on in. I'd be happy to talk to you. They smile, happy, and they're like, okay. So they come inside, and the home is what you'd expect it to be. It's probably just a couple of rooms. The main room he's in right now, and there's a small bedroom. A door leads to a bedroom in the back. Um, there's some chairs that they can sit on, and probably not enough. And Rand's leaning against the thing, and... Kip and artists are sitting down on, on a couple of chairs. He sits down across from him. Says, Caradon, you say? And they're, and they're like, yeah, we're heading up there. Um, but, you know, I'll be honest, not a lot of people know much about Caradon. We've been asking at several different ports, you know, and we ask about this place and where we're traveling. We're, he's like, what takes you up there? He goes, well, um, our friend who travels with us is uh, a merchant. It's true. Um, but we're heading up there just to, you know, See what's going on. We heard there might be some trouble up there, um, and that we might be able to assist. But we know little, very little about the place. We thought we would ask. I just realized that my posters drive me crazy. Cats. <laughs> Anyways, he goes. Uh, he's like, oh, okay. Well, yeah, I'd be happy to speak with you. As he begins to talk, kind of gets a little bit of like a sad look on his. He's like, uh, Caradon is a beautiful land. It really is. But it's very troubled. And what do you mean by troubled? He goes, well, I trade, I went there two years ago. You know, like many other kingdoms, I thought maybe we could open up some type of trade. They're not that far north. Um, you know, and we have some stuff here, fishing. Maybe we're something else. See what we had up there. More importantly, see what they might have that we could use. If nothing else, just maybe to be a, a buyer and reseller here. I'd always had a hand at fishing, but I didn't do as well with it. So I thought maybe in this new world, I could open up something in the way of trade. We don't have a lot of trading partners out here. Um, well, they accepted me warmly, very friendly, but uh, made it quite clear that they weren't interested. I can also tell you I wasn't the first person to try. Lands from south and north, I'm sure have. Even those even those desert bastards from the north. Desert bastards. And he goes, yeah. He goes, he goes north of our border. Runs into a, a super hot desert, land like we'd never seen before, and uh, I can't, I, I can't deny that our our two groups, our two races of people, have uh, had some problems over the last twenty plus years since the merge. But you know, they'd also tried, I found out, to open up trade, and they were pushed away as well. 
Um, I decided to stay a few days, if not a week, you know, just to maybe ask around, maybe try to win over some people. Um, and I got sick. I mean, I'm sure you can imagine living here my whole life. So hot there, and humid, and I guess my body just wasn't used to it. And I got sick. So I ended up having to stay for several weeks. I was just too weak to travel. He'd just come up there on a small sailboat himself with a few things he'd had. He doesn't have a store or employees. I'd gathered up some skins from hunting and what fish I was able to get and a few fish I was able to buy and hope to go up there and try to sell them and use that money to buy goods we didn't have. I was able to buy some of their stuff. Nobody wanted to buy my stuff. I got sick and ended up staying there for a couple of weeks. And, you know, the people took care of me. They really did. Uh, got to go to one of the temples uh, where I was... I, Bad fever, but once it finally broke, um, still spent some, they, they welcomed me to stay until I felt safe enough to travel. Um, I made friends there. There's a lot of nice people, um, but they are reserved. You know, they don't talk about their past or their history much. Um, and there's, I mean, I'll be honest with you, there's talk that there's some problems in the you know, royal family. Uh, some type of intrigue. They wouldn't talk about it. People who I have to be honest that even in even told me that much, um, you know, really, you know, it, it, it was it's like I had to pry it out of them, kind of. But yeah, it was just you know trouble with the royal family and that it had kind of cast a pall over the land. I guess it's been going on for a long time. I don't, I couldn't say what. I mean, I didn't see anything like nobody was on, you know, houses were on fire. Everybody had food. Everybody had a place to live. You know, I, I didn't see anything that was horrible going on other than you know just that overall feeling of sadness well finally i felt well enough and it was time for me to come home and gathered up what supplies i could buy with the funds that i had all my fish had gone bad by that point i'd eaten some of them while i stayed but most of it was gone and i headed back home i'd been gone for seven weeks the whole voyage i was probably gone a month to two at that point but when i came back the whole village was dead. Everybody was quiet. Anytime I came around, they wouldn't talk to me. Um, it just made me feel very unwanted. I mean, I'm, I was born and raised in this village. I had nowhere else to go. So I, you know, I lived in a small home close to the village. I took what I could, come out here and built this new place a little far out so I could be on my own. Because, you know, to be honest, I just wasn't made to feel wanted here anymore. Much I hate to say it, I'm, I've considered leaving the lands. Maybe going to one of the other villages to the north, because there's other villages. And the main city of these people, they knew that already, but he's like, yeah, some of the villages, they go up there and try to start again. I hate to do it. This is all I've ever known, but, you know, I'll be honest, it gets lonely. The guy's incredibly nice, and he's completely polite. And they're like, they're looking for holes in his story, but there really isn't anything. And when they first walked in and said, carried on, everybody else got hushed, too, at the, at the end. So they're like, okay, maybe which side of this is the, the problem side? And uh, they're like, yeah. He goes, we, uh, yeah, we're headed up there ourselves. He's like, well, they're good people. You get up there. I mean, like I said, they, they probably won't trade with you either. They won't trade with anyone else, but they'll be nice to you. They'll be friendly. If you want to buy goods, they'll sell them to you. You know, if you want to buy something, you know, you need supplies for your ship, you're carrying on. Uh, but I wouldn't expect them to make you feel like they'd like you to be there. Even by the time I left, I still was felt that feeling like they'd rather I left. Nardis kind of leans back and she's like, okay. 
scratch back of her neck. She's like, well, definitely appreciate that. Uh, the information you've given us. And for the first time, Ulf looks at her a little weird. He's like, where'd you guys say you were from again? Uh, Kingdom of Serenity. Far over here. Uh, one of our friends who's not here, her father is the Lord of, uh, Merchant Lord uh, Darstopia. Like, oh, okay, that name I've heard of before. Now he's eyeing them. He's like, I was asking a lot of questions. Like, like, yeah, yeah, but, uh, you know, we're just kind of making our way up there. And he goes, well, you know, clear such as yourselves. I mean, here you have no problems at all. My gentleman hanging out with you. Tell you what, I've got something that I think would help you acclimate yourself to the people. The fact that you're clerics, you're already got a step ahead. Because from what I saw, they were definitely more welcoming of clerics than anybody else in the time. But I did make some friends, and I did get something that I think might help you acclimate to. Maybe help get you a little bit friendlier reception. Okay, thank you. I appreciate it. He's like, yeah. He goes, hang on. Step in the back room. He stands up and, again, it's a good-sized room, but he has to kind of scooch around artists to go into the bedroom and such. He goes, open the door and leaves the room. Artist is like, what do you guys think? Kip gets up and he's just kind of pacing around the room a little bit. And he's like, teams? A nice guy, like I, you know, I, I didn't get any unwanted feeling or feel uncomfortable. Ours is like I didn't really. I mean, until he started asking where we're from. But I mean, let's be honest. It's the same way they acted last night at the inn too. So we finally won him over. So I mean, it's, it's hard to know who's really telling the true thing here. That hurts. You can imagine for artists, you know, the truth, right? And they're beginning to chat and such, and they're, they're kind of talking about that in hushed tones, waiting for him to come back, and then the door opens, and all they see, all, Ran is, Ran is, has moved over, and he's, he's sitting next to Artis at this point. Kip is kind of standing up, just pacing back and forth. They hear the door open, and Ran sees Kip's eyes open really wide, really quick. And without even saying anything, Ran immediately grabs Artis and pulls them both down onto the floor, just as something heavy goes swinging right where their heads were. Watch out, comes the yell from Kip. Already, Rand's already on the floor with Artis. And they hear his rapier being pulled from its sheath. Rand rolls and is immediately back up on his feet, pulls his sword as well. That's just the type of fighting he is. He's much quicker up. Artis would be doing the same, but Rand will be up faster than anyone else. And she sees, and he sees Ulf coming in, and Ulf has in each of his hands just these two big, huge cleavers. Is like a weapon. It's cleaver with a slightly long handle. But the, the blades are huge. Um, a short sword length for anybody regular human size. For him, of course, it looks much smaller. Just imagine the type of heads he could chop off a deer or something with that thing. But he has these two cleavers, and he kicks the chair that Artemis was sitting in to start marching forward. And as he does, he says something in a language they don't know, and there's a howl noise echoes through the room. And a swirly mist appears next to him, and this black shadowed wolf appears. So it looks like a wolf, and it has red glowy eyes, reddish orange glowy eyes. And even though it's a solid wolf, it's almost like there's a, 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 a very black fog wafting off of it. Like it formed out of that, and little waft is coming off. 
Rand and Kip immediately rush in to step over Artis, who's still getting up. Because Artis was thrown to the ground. She didn't know what was happening. Takes her an extra second to get up. Those of you playing Dungeons and Dragons, they get to get up immediately. It takes her one round. So <laughs> that's happening. And so they get up quickly and immediately rush in. Because they're trying to keep Artis behind him. Not because Artis is incapable, but instinctively, Rand is going to protect her. And Kip, same type of thing, since she knows she's on the ground. Right? And Artis is a caster. Giving her that extra minute, maybe there's something spell-like she can do while they hold that line. So as they rush in, Kip charges in at the wolf, which is kind of right in front of him anyways. The wolf lunges at him, while Rand goes in and immediately starts meleeing with Ulf. So, Ulf is incredibly fast. Faster than he should be. And that's important to notice. He's faster than he should be. And he's incredibly strong, about as strong as you'd expect. But he's constantly coming in with those cleavers, and he's very good with them. And Ran finds that he's mostly parrying. And after just a couple seconds, he, he can feel and knows, just from the practice and in the time they've been together, Artis stepping up as well. And the two of them are now meleeing against Ulf. Now, Artis, who has her shield on her back, pulls her shield around, and she's got her morning star, and she's funky. Uh, Ran is two-handed swords very often, or one-handed one-handed sword. He can use one or two depending on what he's doing, but very often he can do He has another smaller knife he can pull out and dagger, or he can use his hands for attacks, because he does have that martial arts style, combat fighting style that mixes with his sword play. So, while this is going on, within just the first few seconds of Artis stepping in, Artis nails a good hit on Ulf, right on his side. Artis is doing well against this guy, immediately. And very quickly, it's Ran parrying the blows of the Cleavers while Arvis, Artis is waiting for the openings to get in. This is something that they've practiced. Each of them would have practiced fighting at some point or another as a team with each other. Maeve with Petal, Artis with Petal. Ran with Maeve. There would be some experience of, hey, this is what we would do in a situation. And they've drilled that over years of practicing. And they've all been trained to fight something very often by the same people. Whereas Ran was raised by his father, trained by his father specifically, so on and so forth. He still has to learn to fight as a team, right? And so you can imagine they all go to some the same combat school and do practicing drills together with whoever the general of whatever it is, maybe one of the other knights. They're going to learn that stuff. Um, and as they grow older and it becomes clear they're a bit of a unit, they're a group of friends, they're going to start being shown how to use that more together. Mercy might be like, okay, if you're fighting with a magic user, here's your job. If you're going to be the meleeer and you're there with Petal, you've got to give Petal the time to cast the spells she needs. You've got to be the, the, the wall in front. At the same time, if someone's being the wall for you, you need to know what you need to do to benefit that situation. Do you need to step in and help or do you need to cast a spell? And for that, she's also going to use the temple. You know, training from Templars. So there's going to be a lot of that type of training. So as they're in here, Ran is blocking a lot of the attacks on both him and Artis. Well, Artis is doing her best to kind of use Ran as a shield and in between get in. And she did, gets a couple hits in. And you can imagine at the same time, there's going to be a couple small cuts on arms or whatever from Artis. Ulf is still relatively skilled. Now... Kip, on the other hand, is doing very well. 
the first time they've seen him fight. Now, the corner of his eyes, Rand can see Kip. And he's very fast with his rapier. And he stabbed the wolf several times. But it doesn't seem to have slowed the wolf down at all. The wolf doesn't... It's not bleeding. It doesn't seem like it cares much about this. It'll, it'll howl in pain and back up a minute and then come back in. But there's no bleedy wound or anything like that. And he's doing the best he can. And then... Let me see. Where was I? So... As that's going on, Kip is being backed further and further up against a corner where it was like kind of like a, 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 a an oven and a bed kind of in the corner there. So the, the oven's used for cooking, but it also helps keep the room warm. So he's getting backed up into that corner by this wolf that's just chewing at him. <clears throat> Several things all seem to happen at once. Kip yells out as the wolf bites out and chomps him really bad, bites him really bad on the arm and doesn't let go, and Kip falls. Ulf does a very wide swing, and Ran is able to get a cut in at that time, but at the same movement, Ulf cuts Artis right across her stomach with one of his cuts, and out of the corner of his eye, he sees Kip fall. The other corner, on his other side, he sees blood flying out of Artis and Artis falling backwards. And Rand doesn't know what happened with either of them, but he knows he can't let Ulf keep going. And so Rand steps in. And what I mean by that is two things. Number one, he steps in to be the primary fighter or if you want from video game point of view, tank in this fight. He's stepping up saying, okay, Ulf, now you're just dealing with me. But he's also stepping up and inside the man's reach. In many ways, that, that's dangerous, especially using, for what is him, a smaller blade for Ulf, because he doesn't need the big long reach that you would with a long sword. But Rand steps in, directly into close to him as, as quickly as he can. And he gets close. This does, with Ulf being much larger than Rand, does make him trying to fight in closer. He can either step back to get more of a swing, or he has to try to fight downward at Rand. And Rand gets in close and immediately starts fighting differently. Instead of trying to be defensive, he takes a more offensive. And he's not trying for cuts. He's trying for stabs. His sword flips down, he's got the blade out, and he's trying to stab wherever he can, and he's staying in close, and while he's cutting, he's also now using his hands, his offhand, to punch groin, in thigh, kidney. He's starting to move in and start beating on this dude, who's really big, so it doesn't have the effect it would on someone smaller, but is enough to start knocking Ulf back and making him try to fall back a bit to be in a better fighting position. Ran is staying very close in on him and being short as he is, he's right down in this man's stomach, groin leg area, and he starts cutting across legs and knees, and he's not going so much for a kill blow, but to start do massive amounts of smaller attack. Because that can be just about as deadly. You just got to cut one good tendon, someone will bleed out. But he's trying to do a bunch of smaller things that will force Ulf back and away from artists. And hope that Artis is okay, and hope that Kip is okay, and that together they can deal with that wolf. He's just trying to buy time. 
And it's starting to work, and Ulf is being pushed back towards the doorway of the room he came out of. But then, about that time, Ulf begins to speak again in the words of magic. This is something Rand is not capable to do much about. Tries to go faster, but it doesn't stop Ulf from casting whatever spell he's casting. Kip is on the ground, and he's beating the wolf in the head with it. Wrong arm. With the rapier, with the bend of his rapier, trying to get the wolf off of his hands, and there's just blood flowing. He's just screaming in anger, trying to beat this wolf with the pummel. Artis hears this. He hears Rand call out warning of the spell. Here's Ulf casting the spell. Here's Kip yelling out and the wolf growling. She hears all these things at once. But what she hears over top of all of that is Quintius saying her name. He doesn't yell it. He doesn't scream it. He says it calmly, sternly. Artis. Even with that calm voice, it's over everything else. And in that moment, it's almost like all the fear of the trepid just washes off and she just immediately calms down hearing his voice. And he says something and she nods and she stands up and she pulls out the scepter. And she begins to speak a command word. She didn't know the word. She doesn't know what she's saying. But she's saying it as Quintius is saying it. She knows the word as he said. Literally, they're saying it synchronized. But as she's saying the word, she's literally learning it as she's saying it. And when she does, there's a shock wave of light that flashes off of the scepter. Like a, like a, almost like a, a throb. Shock wave just... It goes... Ulf releases the spell, but instead of going at his enemies like he expects it, the shock wave hits him and he feels the spell being thrown back at himself. He cries out, blinded by the black flame that is now burning his face and the shadow that is literally on him, like, like a shadow magic. It's literally sticking to him, burning him, and his eyes are blinded as he's screaming out. The wolf dissipates. When the shockwave hits it, it just blows it into, the, into shadow again, and it just dissipates and fades into the air. Ran doesn't think twice. And moving in as quickly as he can against the blinded Ulf, in just two to three deep cuts, Ulf falls to his knees, bleeding from huge wounds across his stomach. The last one straight through his chest. He falls to his knees and Rand sees that he's still mumbling. Not knowing if it's magic or what, he doesn't take a chance. Pulling his sword out, he spins and beheads the man, clearing the room, and the head just... Rolls on the floor and the body collapses to the side. The, th the flash of light, which the, the throb of energy, that pulse of light, as it's fading in the room, because it, it lingers, everybody sees it. Even, even Rand and Kip could see that happening. They see artists doing it and the, the throb of, of energy or magic coming off of it. But as she's doing it, she feels her body completely drained and weak. And as the light begins to fade, so does the light in her eyes, and she passes out. Everything goes black for her.
The town of Tentacle Reef is named that way for a reason. The large reef that grows not far off of its shores is actually rather treacherous and makes it difficult for very many large ships to come close to the, to the small town itself. Smaller ship, fishing vessels, rowboats, even little sail ships, and even though the occasional large ship can get through, but they have to be very careful. Because the uh, reef is very old, but very strong and thick, and it has been known to sink multiple ships. In fact, a couple larger ships still slightly stick out of the water, just a little bit offshore, slowly being engulfed by the reef as well. Hundreds of feet of reef between the land and that. Uh, the reef also highly, highly resided by octopi. A whole bunch of octopus living inside. Um, and they're known for that. Small, medium, large, nothing giant, no monstrous ones. But there's a lot of them in the village. It's a lot of octopus, I'll say that. Um, but it's it's a relatively small town. Uh, again, it's, it's probably going to be like one of the towns of Serenity. You know, there's probably several hundred people living there. Probably 50, 60 buildings, several businesses, a small inn. Um, definitely a fish market, things like that. It's, there's not a lot of other land around it, and it doesn't currently reside underneath of any type of kingdom. It's just a little town that lives on the shore. Because of its reef, um, not a lot of things can get in there, so it's not a trade hub. So there's not a lot of things about the village that another kingdom might want to come in and take over. So they've lived pretty much as their own since the merge happened, far away from everybody else. The reef, of course, is not enough to stop Captain Endian, who was able to maneuver the ship through the through the reef. He's been to this town once or twice before, but it was a very long time ago, um, and doesn't remember much other than you know the treachery of it. They had been pushing that ship to its utmost capacity, and then a little bit further. In the days since they left Shattertooth Island, or Shattertooth Harbor, they have stressed this as hard as they could to get there. This is one situation where they did make use of Seraph's strength that time when they needed something moved quick and hard. They, so you grab this rope and yank it. Need you to do what three other people could do. And they everybody was on deck helping where they could. Even Mugen was out there with a mop wiping and cleaning things, keeping stuff out of the way and tying things down, just trying to keep everybody out of the way. Keep things so people aren't tripping on things as they're bursting through the water. The sea mages are drained, to the, but they're still going because, you know, you don't want to make Endian mad. You fail him, you die. You can't have any of that. So you just start pushing it. Hello, Tyla. <laughs> oh, man, is there another part of Pandora in this kingdom? Hmm. Maybe we'll see. So this boat is finally pulling into shore. They have been pushing. And finally, as it comes in place, they're able to, they have to start slowing down so they can make it through the reef. But they finally pull ashore and our three friends here, Seraph and Deacon, and Mugen, as well as Captain Endian and a couple of his crew, come off on the decks of the docks, and the first thing they notice, there's no other large ship here. They were originally told that a ship from Oromon landed here, and they could tell it wasn't there as they were coming in. They need to find out what information they can. They make dock, they go in, drop whatever money they need to to land, and start making their way into town. Uh, they make their way up the dock, and of course, not far from the dock, near the very edge, is an inn, basically right on the shores. They start going in there. Now, the innkeeper's outside. A lot of people are outside, oddly. I want to point that out. 
A lot of people are standing outside of their homes or their shops, looking down at the captain's ship as he's he and his allies, keeping them the crew stuck walking up, walking up, and everyone looks very nervous. Thumbs up, they walk up and they go up to the who's clearly the innkeeper standing in front of the inn. But you know, still ask, and then he goes, You the keeper, you the innkeeper? Yes, sir. And and we don't want any trouble. Sir, we don't want any trouble. We have nothing you're going to want here. We're just simple folk just trying to get by. We don't have much of value. We don't have a lot of coin. you got to understand, he's a pirate. He's a famous pirate, and he's on his favorite pirate ship. And he probably didn't pull down his pirate flag. You know, because warn everybody he's coming. So all they know is Captain Indian, the a pirate who very quickly looks like the well-known Captain Indian comes marching up their dock. And he stops for a second, he looks at him, he's like, I can see what you're thinking right now. In his head, he's like, I see this. And Sarah Seven Sarah goes, Sir, we're, Captain here is not here for any trouble. In fact, just passing through. Don't need anything at all. We're just here to ask a couple of questions, get a little bit of information, and we're going to be on our way. The innkeeper, clearly you can see some relief, like, oh, okay. Well, that's good. Just stopping by, just passing through, everybody. And people are like, okay. <laughs> They're all watching nervously from their doors and such. The captain says, A week ago, another ship came into port from a land called Oramon. You know what I'm talking about? The innkeeper's face gets a little frustrated. He goes, Oh, I know well the men you're talking about. Four days they sat here. They left about two and a half days ago. Those four days was horrible for us. Mistreating the people, taking what they wanted. Hurt hurt Jimmy's boy over there. Not sure the lad will walk again, just because he didn't like the way they were talking to little lady over there. But yeah, just horrible people. They arrived and a bunch of men left. Went up, you know, they had horses on their boat. And they on horses, this is information they didn't know. Horses. The horses and about 20 to 30 men just went right up the road. Like, where's that road lead? And he goes, there's a kingdom. Days and days. I got a little gnat in front of my face. I'm trying to swat it. <laughs> There's a kingdom. You know, good week and a half, two weeks that direction. Of course, they were in a hurry. They may get there quicker. But that's the only thing where that road goes. We rarely see anybody from here because there are some port cities further to the east that are much easier to get in and out of. So they don't really trouble us at all. We don't have anything they want. But uh, yeah, they took off. And then, you know, a couple days later, one came back. This catch, and you're like, oh, really? See this man? Oh, some I did. Yeah, I was sitting right out here. Standing right here, and he ran up to the other man who seemed to be in charge of the ship. And they were talking, and he gave him some type of scroll or letter. The man took it, went, got on the boat. Within just a few minutes, the boat took off and left, heading back out west, same direction it came from. One man got back on his horse, went running back up the road again. And you and Seraph looking at each other and they're like, one came back with information west, so direction Oramon is. They didn't come back with Dina. That's a good sign. So those that are chasing her are technically still in front of us, which isn't good because so is she, but they didn't find her and they didn't bring her back to the boat, which is what they were afraid of, that they'd get back here and they'd already have her. And so Endian asks, about the gentleman 
who the Barracuda said that was here. He says, do you know a so-and-so? Why, yes, I do. He's the tanner. He lived just up the hill up there, though. He and some uh, some travelers left, oh, goodness, weeks ago. Head to the same kingdom now that you mentioned. Uh, he didn't quite say why. He's a tanner. I thought maybe he'd be going to pry some wares. Though he, he usually does that more in the, in, in the fall before the winter. But, you know, being spring, he, he, I don't know. Maybe he's working all winter. But, yeah, he and, he and some uh, some travelers, like he either hitched a ride with them or they hitched a ride with him and head up that way weeks ago. And Seraph, who obviously looks like Seraph and who's very, makes people a little uncomfortable because of the way he looks, goes, was there a young woman with him? Dark hair. Describes Dina. He goes, yeah, yeah, there's a girl like that. And an old guy was kind of balding and a dude who's dressed all in gray. That's Perrin. It's Kurgan. And an older lady. Out by the, the you know, grandma. That's her family. That fits the description of Dean and family. And Endian is like, okay, they came through here at least and they were okay. This is a good sign. These are things you can tell by looking at each other if you're thinking these same things. They're like, we appreciate it. Thank you. They, they go to step back to the to, to the deck. Because Endian, the whole goal was is that they were going to get here. Endian and some of his crew were going to see if they could get some horses, buy some horses, or if not, head up the road until they could find some horses and go after Dina. Help Seraph and Deacon. They know that they're faster and they're going to get ahead, but with a group of bunch of people like that, they could probably use the help. And you can imagine how invested Endian is in also making sure that Dina gets uh, somewhere safe. They turn, they go to walk away, and, and the innkeeper's like, wait, 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 one other thing. They turn, they're like, yes? When the man gave him the letter thing, he said something kind of weird. Like, what did he say? He calls it, what did he say? He said, make sure this gets into, and he said somebody's name. It's imperative he sees this. And he walks back up to the man and goes, what was the name? Uh, it was uh, Loman? There a Loman? Lehman? And Endian's face just falls and he goes, Lomar. Yeah! Lomar! That was the name. Lomar. Make sure you get this in the hands of Lomar as quickly as possible. And the boat took off a few minutes later. Endian's face gets angry. He comes back walking over to Seraph, who heard this as well. Because they all know Lomar's name, Lomar of the Nine. Lomar was the head cleric underneath the emperor, and the emperor's, you could say almost like tutor, if you will, who has been missing since the day the emperor was killed, like 15, 18 years ago at this point. Some thought dead, some figuring he was still out there somewhere. So an Oromanian ship arrived. Oromon soldiers under the control of Lomar. This adds a new problem. Lomar's back in play. Because not only is he back, he has forces working for him. How many? What's the size of it? Is at this very moment while we're racing around, is he in control of Ormon now? Is he running the entire... He could be running the entire empire at this point. We know others have been seeking for her. Could this all be because Lomar found out about her? This is a bigger problem. Seraph is standing there with Endian and, and they're, they're going over it. He must do this yet. Do you think he has Ormon? I can't. I don't know. I haven't, we've been dealing with all this for the last several weeks. I haven't spoken to any other ships. 
I have no idea what's going on in Oramon. Everybody we're talking to is someone down the chain, not up the chain. Because like, who knows? I don't know. For all I know, Paxwell and Ardywell could be at war with them for this moment. I, I just don't have any information. And Seraph goes, I have to go after Dina. And Endian goes, of course you do. Seraph looks at him and goes, that ship cannot And Endian stands there and his face just kind of goes blank. And he reaches out his hand and Seraph reaches out and they shake their hands and he goes, they're not going anywhere. He goes, when we're done, we'll come back and try to find you. Seraph goes, I wish you the luck, sir. And Endian turns around and immediately starts and his men start making their way back to the ship. Now, Seraph had all their stuff on them, because originally they didn't hope to leave. Seraph and Mugen and Deacon are there. Or, and Endian's like, do you need any? Do you want any of my men? And he's like, no, we'll move faster without them, and you're going to need everybody you got. We just worked the hell out of them, and now we're sending him three more, four more days that way after a ship. You've got to catch up. You're going to have enough to take care of. You'll need every man you've got. Endian, you know, last thing he says to Seraph before he takes off is, Got a lot riding on you, boy. Don't prove me wrong. And he makes his way back to the ship, and within just a few minutes, it already starts turning around and making its way back out of port. They probably weren't at the dock less more than thirty minutes, and they're already gone, leaving. The uh, innkeeper's like, did, "Did I did I say something wrong?" Seraph kind of gives him a sad smile and says, no, no. said what we needed to know. We thank you for that. My friends and I need to go after those men, and we need to go quickly. There are a place around here we might be able to purchase some horses. Yeah, yeah, there's a blacksmith up the hill. He's, he's got several horses. Normally, he just rents them out to people who need to travel. You know, we don't have a lot of need for horses here on a daily basis. But, uh, you know, for the right money, I'm, I'm sure he'd sell you a few. Seraph thanks him very much, and he and Deacon and Mugen go walking up the street towards the smith, blacksmith. They need to get some horses, and they need to get moving fast. Between them and Dina, it's 20 to 30 Oromanian soldiers, who could be elites, or could be a mix of something else. But they're between him and Dina. He has to make sure that stops. He's got to get to them before they get to her. Sure enough, Getting to the blacksmith, they basically throw out money that's twice what the animals are worth. Saddles, tack harness, all of it. And the man's like, yes, I'll sell you horses for twice what they're worth. It, I feel like I'm robbing it. They're like, just, we're in a hurry. Take the money. We need saddlebags? I need his money. Saddlebags. Because none of them are poor on money. They buy the horses, and very quickly, the three of them are off. Move, they, they move relatively quickly. Because Mugen is on the back of uh, Deacon's horse. Remember, he doesn't have his horse. I wanted to stress that. Because somebody asked, does Mugen know how to ride horses? No, he does not. He is riding on the back of Deacon's while Seraph runs is on his. And they take off up the road after the Ormanian soldiers, even though they know that they have had, remember, not three days, five and a half days at start. Left for, they landed left for three days, came back 
actually more like seven to eight days of math right and i'm not good at math so it's been like a week they have a lot of ground to cover but there's only a few of them and seraph knows that if it needs to with deacon's magic his skills if they have to leave the horses behind they can it just will be a lot easier on them if they don't so you know because if they got to run the whole way he may be too tired to fight by the time he gets there and seraph in his mind is like there's 30 people in front of me that i have to te- i have to kill to save dina my friends are going to help, but there's 30 people in front of me that I have to get through. No matter what. They take off up that road as well towards the same kingdom, chasing after them as quickly as they can. Fortunately, they had food and supplies already provided by Indian. They grabbed a few things before they left. They hope to make good time because they have a lot to deal with by the time they get there. Now, about that time, back in the kingdom of Serenity, Tevin is sitting on a tree stump. Stump is he's over the years carved down and willed to be almost like a little stool. It's just outside of his home, sitting there drinking a warm wine or mead or something like that. It's early spring, Serenity. Uh, nice time, just sunny enough to be outside. A little bit of a wind, because a little bit of clearing where they are in the woods. He hears the door close behind him, and he smiles. Turns, see Cat walking towards him. He knows that Cat could have come through the door without making a sound at all, but she did that to be courteous. It's does to. They're not trying to scare him. Appreciates that. He's awfully sneaky quiet himself, but he's nothing compared to what Cat can do. Cat comes over and kind of sits beside him, half half stool in there, puts his arm around her. Heading back today? She's yep, got some things to do. Um maybe a few weeks before I can get back out here. Business. I have to take of back at home. Evan nods and doesn't say anything. Knows better than to ask what that business is. Well, I'm uh, probably going to be heading up to Serenity myself here next couple days. I've not been up there for a while, and now that it's getting spring, I uh, promised to help Kelvin with some of the early planting. I'm good friends with Kelvin. He's like, I promised to meet up with Kelvin, and Kelvin has uh, been taking care of some seedlings inside the temple throughout the winter. And uh, there's some these seedlings and such he's going to give to me to plant out here. I want to add uh, some extra stuff to the garden. She's like, all right, well, I probably won't see you there. And I don't know how long I'll be before I'm back. But be careful out there. And he's like, you too. She smiles and elbows him, and he almost falls off the stump. And she's like, you don't have to tell me to be careful. I'm always careful. And they laugh and kind of... She goes back in to get her stuff, and he's sitting there drinking his... onion. He feels bad that he lied about that. <laughs> going to go into town. And he is going to go talk to Kelvin about those things, but he hadn't planned on doing that for a while. But with her going to be gone for a while, he finds that he's feeling more and more lonely when she's not around. So, knowing she won't be back for a longer period, he uh, decides he's going to go into Brandy and spend some time with his friend, just on the spot at that moment. 
though it didn't seem that much, because he's afraid, of course, that if he seems too attached, she'll stop coming around. But he knows that he has completely fallen for the young. A little concerned, because like to make that official, does not have even the slightest hope that she can say yes. So inside, he's got this inner struggle, where he wants an active part of her knowing that there's a huge chunk of his of her life that he can't be involved in, know about. It feels very pulled in the middle at this point. Thinks he might talk to Kelvin about it. Kelvin's a good friend, and even though he's a kender, very good at not telling things <laughs> to other people that he shouldn't. Thinks maybe spending some time with Serenity with Kelvin with friends and stuff. You know, after the long winter, he hasn't been Serenity as much. Maybe he'll, uh, he'll feel a little bit better about it. He'll feel more like his old self. Sitting there taking his drink, and he's like, God, I hope so. <laughs> you know, because you're like, this sucks. Mercy is inspecting, not a troops per se, but some of the new recruits that have worked their way up. Basically, almost what you call a graduating class. There's a, people are from training are officially going to be taking, and part of those are three new battle mages that have just completed their training as well. Mercy makes a point of always meeting with the battle mages at different phases of their training. Um, because if you'll remember way back, the original agreement with the battle mages is that they will s learn and train with Serenity and they will serve as part of Serenity's military for a contracted period of time. At the end of that time, both Mercy or the battle mage can cease that Okay, I've been great. My time is up. I'd like to move somewhere else and find more work. Maybe I want to be you know, traveling, whatever the case is. Or maybe they just don't fit well and Mercy's like, we appreciate all you've done. We won't be needing you any further. It's rare that she's ever had to say that to one. A little bit more often that they leave and want to go do other things. Um, because, you know, as mages, they're looking to grow and such. And just being a static part of a military is not for all of them. Though it comes with uh, a lot of perks and some concerns. Remember, Battle Company has to protect them the, uh, because there's always the fear of assassinations. Although it has been many, many years since they've had to deal with Oromon assassinating their mages. Oromon has enough going on with their own civil war and such. And even less and less information has been coming out of Oromon lately, which always makes Mercy concerned. The less she knows about Oromon, the more she has to worry. She likes to stay on as much knowledge as possible and has been considering trying to send, having Quan send someone in there again beyond their regular spots to see if maybe we can get a little bit further information. But they know that's a, that's a really dangerous position for that person. And in almost every situation, Quan would want to go himself. But Quan's too well known to do that anymore. Um, he's older now, but more than that, Quan is recognized as one of her knights. Everybody everybody walking down the street is going to say, that's Kwan, he's one of the knights. Everybody would recognize him. So it's harder for him to be the sneaky guy like he used to. But he still runs Shadow Company, and they still have people doing those jobs. But Mercy's seeing of these folks. It's a good class. Uh, they haven't had any major fights or battles since Serenity was attacked years ago. Again, there's always some skirmishes on the border with other races, goblins, orcs, bandits. There's those type of things they have to deal with. A lot of it more to the north than the south. Um, although their presence has grown more to the north since they started um, dealing with 
the drow, which now are north several weeks. Since trade has opened with them and their people, uh, they've had more of a, you know, the beginnings of roads have been started over the last couple of years uh, to get, you know, it's like dirt road. Trees are being cut so wagons can get through, but it's a long time before there's a real road. But some people are still traveling, and so Serenity has had more of a, a presence north uh, further into the forest uh, than they have ever had before. So Serenity is extending its borders again. And every time Serenity has to extend its borders, that's more cost. It's more people, more upkeep, more defenses. That's a lot. So Mercy finds herself dealing with a lot of that paperwork now. She misses the days when she was back out there fighting, dealing with stuff like that. But unfortunately, she's, her life gets boring. So she does that. She tries to get out in the field and action when needed. Oh, there's trouble. I'll go take care of it. A lot of times her people are so well-trained, problems are solved by the time she hears about them. Except, of course, for the Black Rose, which just seems to be causing a bigger and bigger thorn in her side lately. But weeks without dealing with her, without any problems, and then suddenly an explosion of stuff. All of a sudden, there'll be all these things stolen here, blah, blah, blah. Never kidnapping. Basic rules still kept. Doesn't mess with kids. Doesn't allow any of the super seedy stuff to happen. So often, it'll seem quiet. Like regular criminal actions, pickpockets, that stuff always going on. But then there'll be a wave of big stuff, and then it'll fade off for a while. Mercy is always trying to find that pattern, what could be causing that, without any luck. But Mercy has, for the first time, potentially, according to Quan, someone working their way up in that organization. For the very first time, they have someone who's made it past the very outer edges of the Thieves' Guild. They've been trying for a decade to get someone in there. And every time before they where they can get any information, the person gets found out. Sometimes they return, sometimes they just disappear. Never get any real information. But according to what Quan has just reported to her earlier that morning, they may actually have someone who's made it in farther than anyone else has before. Someone who's starting to be trusted. Quan has hope that they may actually have some information leading Black Rose, or some of her more senior agents in the near future. So in her heart, Mercy's like, oh, I hope so. Thorn in my side for too long. Deal with this. There's always going to be some form of thief element, but she's too organized and she's too powerful. I've got to nip this before it gets out of hand. She already has her grips on Kingdom Fire Moon at this point. Don't remember from back there. She's now technically over two kingdoms, hundreds of miles apart. And that Thieves' Guild is loyal to her as well. That's unheard of. I mean, she's so scary and so powerful that from hundreds of miles away, no one's willing to try to take over. That means when she took over, she did it fast and she caused a lot of damage quick. So much so that no one else would want to question to try to take that. Mercy does not like knowing that that person's living somewhere out here in Serenity. She's looking over, standing on the balcony. She's looking over and she sees her city somewhere out there, Black Rose. 
doing who knows what at this moment. Right now, there's nothing I can do to stop it. But, first time, might be getting And we're going to finish the day with one more small little snippet of story. Dandy awakens. Immediately tells she's outside again. She sighs. Oh, I've been sleepwalking again. She's not standing. She's sitting. Finds that she's sitting right on the walkway. There's a little fence that goes around, a white picket fence around their house that she and Petal had painted flowers all over when she was little and such. She's sitting right at the gate, almost like she was going to go out the gate, but then stopped and sat down. She stands up, rubs her face, and she's like, ooh, I'm wet. Looks up, she goes, well, it doesn't look like raining. And even, she looks down, and even in the moonlight, she can see there's blood all over her hands, all over the front of her shirt. She immediately starts looking around. Michael or anyone who might be hurt. I'm not hurt. I feel okay. She turns around and goes running back into the house. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. He throws the door open. Loudly. Not even being dandy. It just throws the door open. A moment later, Michael comes walking out of the back room. Dandy. And she's like, are you okay? Are you okay? I'm okay now. It's okay. And she's like, look! I, did I hurt somebody? Okay. Calm down. Sit down at the table and he goes over and gets a pot of water off the stove they have and he grabs a towel and starts washing it and wiping off her hands. He's like, I just, I was sitting in the front yard and I woke up and I had blood. It's okay. It's okay. It's my blood. <gasps> what happened? He's like, it's okay. Okay. Woke up. A sleepwalk like before. Once I was actually awoken. Started to leave the room. I tried to wake you. Around the corner. Wake you. Next thing I knew, there was a knife in my stomach. He's like, oh! He's like, I'm okay. Still asleep. Instinct. Bell. Continued walking. The knife out. The kit into the cupboard into the kit. Put some of Artis's healing potions. The healing sap. Wound is already gone. Hey. I can't believe I stabbed you. It's okay. But he's okay now. But Maybe we should ask Artemis. Talk to Artemis here. This does seem to be getting worse. You know, luckily, though it hurt a little, and she's starting to cry at this point. Okay, I'm okay. It hurt a little. going to be fine. want to make sure it doesn't escalate. Like, I don't want to hurt anybody. And he says, you don't, darling. Get some rest tonight, or we'll send word out to Artemis meet with her. Okay. 
okay. Helps her wash off and helps her take all the all the bed clothes off. She's still in her bed clothes, soak with blood in the front. Take it off and throws it in the bin or something. We'll wash this tomorrow. I'll probably throw it away. It's stained now. Helps her wash down real quick and then they go back in. She helps her get dressed and very tired. They get in bed together and she kind of curls up against him and he's still crying a little bit because she's so bad. She feels so bad that she stabbed Michael. My God, I, I would never do something like that. Sleepwalking is too much. Lay there. Michael sits there. He also has tears in his eyes, looking down at her. And you can tell he's worried. Something. Think of some problem. Obviously, need to talk. And that's where we're going to stop for today. Went a little bit long today. It's quarter after 10. Um, so I do want to thank you all for coming by and letting me tell my story today. Hopefully it was slightly interesting. I will continue to keep putting little updates what's going back in Serenity because things that I'm doing there are, are important still and they're still going to be an active part of the storyline. Not everybody's just going to be sitting at home while the kids are doing everything. So you can expect more snippets like that popping in every couple of episodes. Um, well, they may not directly affect this storyline and there may not be any like super big crazy reveals and stuff. I still want to make sure that the storyline back there. But I'm very excited to continue more with artists as they make their way to Caradon. That is, if she's alive. <gasps> And then now Seraph is on, on once again leave left Captain Endian. He and his two friends are racing off once again to try to catch up to Dina. Hopefully they'll be successful. I guess we'll see. But I had a lot of fun telling the story tonight. I look very much forward to next week. Uh next, I'm sorry, next episode. That's two weeks from now. Um, because it's possible. Guys, to hold me to this. Just depends on how well the story goes. But it's possible that there might be a huge, massive reveal next time. Not that I want to leave you on a cliffhanger or anything. We might have something super important happen next. And uh, you know, maybe the maybe the kids will be taking stuff to a new level. Hmm? Something strange will be happening. I hopefully some of you will come back and see. But that'll be two weeks from now. Next Thursday will be in April by that point, 2022. Hopefully some of you will come back for that. And if you're listening to this on, again, audio podcast, if you're Spotify or iTunes, I really appreciate you all as well hearing my story. If any of you have a Spotify or iTunes account, it would help. Hugely, if you wouldn't mind going and giving it a follow or a sub, there's a way to rate it or five stars and such, or leave a review. Man, that would help. Uh, it definitely, if you got a friend or someone you think might like the story, please get it out there. Again, I'm just share it with as many people as possible. But uh, yeah, it's been a ton of fun. If you'd like to learn more about Merge Worlds, you'd like to see the figurines, maps, and things like that, go to my website, onlydraven.com. A lot of information there and new stuff popping up all the time. All the social links are down in the description of this stream and all my other streams. 
Uh, and for those of you on audio, go to OnlyDraven.com for links for all your stuff, Merge Worlds, uh, including cool Merge Worlds merchandise. That being said, I'm going to call this a night. Thank you all for coming. I appreciate that. Bonnick said he enjoyed it. And Ashley also enjoyed it. Excellent. I look forward to next time. Maybe something cool is going to happen. Okay. I'm going to let you guys go with that. I don't want to tease you too much. You guys, because <laughs> I may not even get there. All right. You guys have yourselves a great night, a great couple weeks, and I'll see you next time for some more.